Bibles up to Psalm 40, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me for a moment. I am attempting to use technology here. We'll see how it works. If you see me rustling papers around here in a minute, that's because I gave up on this iPad that I'm attempting to use and have gone back to my old paper that uh, sometimes I feel like I'm stuck in the generation between paper and technology. I'm not sure which way I should go. But we, we will be in Psalm 40. We'll be looking at the first three verses of Psalm 40. Psalm 40 reads, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we, as we enter this time of our service where we open up your word, Father God, may your truth be complained. May your truth may be made plain. May we understand it and hear it and acknowledge it, but also, Lord, may we allow it to impact our lives and adjust our lives to honor you and glorify you. And Father, Lord, over the next few minutes, uh, may you give me your word to speak and it not be my own. And if there's any words that I speak that are not of you, may they fall on deaf ears. And, and Lord, may they not be heard. Father, Lord, I ask that you be with us in this time. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, after the past several months that we have endured, um, 2020 has been a unique year to say the least. I have a question Where is your hope? Where is your hope? And from what we've witnessed over the past week, I truly pray your hope is not in our government. I think we could all agree in the doctrine of total human depravity after what we have seen from this political season. Um, and they just seem to be getting worse the older I get. I don't know if it's the more I've noticed what political seasons turn into or if it's just they're truly getting worse. But uh, the, uh, the sinful state of man is on full display as we have witnessed. Um, so I pray our hope is not in that. I pray it is not in that. <clears throat> so in the year of 1735, there were two young English ministers that boarded a boat to the Americas. They, they, they got on this boat in England, and they were headed to the American colonies as an Anglican ministers, new, newly graduated from seminary, newly ordained ministers. They, they were heading to the New World to take the good news of, gospel to the, of the gospel to the nations. Now, on the same ship that these two ministers boarded, there was some Moravian immigrants that were going to the Americas. Now, the Moravians are an interesting group of people. They're from the Czechoslovakia, Germany area, kind of, kind of that part of Europe. But the Moravians, they are kind of the original Reformed group. They, uh, 
They were actually founded by the followers of John Huss. And if you remember last week, I kind of mentioned John Huss as being the, tried by the church 100 years before Martin Luther. And he was, he was teaching the, the same things that Luther brought up to the church that were, where the church was wrong, and he was burned at the stake. So these followers, these Morovians, were actually birthed out of J- John Huss's teachings and his following. So they were reformed well before being reformed was a thing, before um, any of the Reformation took hold. And what came with this was severe persecution from the church, from the society, from everything around them. They faced persecution. But what came with that persecution was a foundation of being servants of Christ to his glory alone. This had to be their hope, to endure the hardship that they, that they did. The hardship just, we, we can't even imagine some of the things they faced. And to give you an idea of kind of, kind of where they were spiritually, one of, their, um, one of the leaders of the Morovians, Count Zinzendorf, it's a pretty cool name, Count Zinzendorf, he was famously quoted, and this is his quote, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. They took seriously the call to glorify God in every part of their life. What they wanted people to know, they didn't want them to be, they didn't want to be remembered. They wanted the gospel of Christ to be remembered above all else. They took it seriously to glorify God. Every little detail of life, their work, worship, family, all to the glory of God. Now, one of these young Anglican ministers noted in his journal that the Morovians always volunteered for the most menial menial task aboard the ship. So at that time, when you boarded a ship to travel across to the Americas, you weren't on a luxury cruise here. You became part of the crew. There were things you had to do. He said the Morovians always volunteered for the worst task, something no honorable Englishman would ever think of doing. He said, but they did it, and they, and they endured it. The work, the suffering, with such a joy and humility that it kind of struck him of how, the, how they served. Now, along this journey, a terrible storm developed in the sea, and they were at danger of being shipwrecked. Sounds a little similar to our passage we looked at last week in Mark, where Jesus calms the storm. But they were caught in a terrible storm in the Atlantic. As the storm raged, the Morovians were in the midst of a worship service and praising God with much intensity. The young minister, he he recounts in his diary, In the midst of the psalms wherewith they began their service, so as they were singing the psalms, the sea broke over and split the mainsail into many pieces. So here come the waves over and they're just destroying the deck of the ship. Water covered the ship and poured between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sang on. They continued worshiping in the midst of the storm. The young minister was perplexed by this. And afterwards, he asked asked one of them, weren't you afraid? And he responded, I think God, no. He said, "But, but weren't your women and children afraid? He said, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. The storm raged around them, and the Morovians kept praising God. Finally, the storm subsided. This encounter with the Morovians left him asking, 
What kind of faith do they possess? And what is it that they hope in? Because it's something he didn't have. And I would ask us today, with all that we have witnessed and seen in the past few months, especially this last week, where is our hope? Would people look at us and ask themselves, how can you have such hope in the storm that's all around us? And this is the type of faith and hope that's demonstrated, that was demonstrated by the Morovians we're going to read about today in Psalm 40. So Psalm 40 was written by David. It's a theme. The theme of this psalm is deliverance. And we can kind of glean from this, from uh, Psalm 38, 39, and 40 all go together as we, we glean from this. Uh, David is facing a physical persecution. We're not really sure what it is. Um, it talks about his enemies surrounding him and those kind of things. So it was some kind of physical persecution. But it's also a conviction of sin. Because if we were to skip down to verse 12 of this psalm, it reads, For evil has encompassed me by number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Evil encompassed him. His iniquities have overtaken him. David is in a pretty low place right now. But there are three points in these three verses I'd like us to notice. First of all, in verse 1, would be desperation. Verse 2, salvation. And verse 3, proclamation. Let's start with verse 1, desperation. I waited patiently for the Lord. Patience is something I know I severely lack today. Uh, in our society, everything is instantaneous. What will we do without Amazon Prime? If I can't get something in two days, I'm disgusted and don't even want to get it. It's like I've forgotten the days when we had catalogs. Remember catalogs? And it was six to eight weeks to get something, and that was actually pretty quick for the time. Nowadays, if I can't get it right now, I'm upset. We want what we want, and we want it now. That's how we are. But when we read, David says that he has waited patiently on the Lord. And this is something we must do as well, is to patiently wait. This is a great reminder that we are not sovereign, the Lord is, and that his timing is perfect. David knew this, and it's easy for us to say, but it is another, it's another for us to live it out. Do our lives reflect a life of patience submitted to God, or do we look more like someone that must be in control at all times? David patiently waits on the Lord. And how does the Lord respond? It says, he inclined to me and heard my cry. David says the Lord inclines to him. The word inclined would be, a good, good way to view this would be like as a mother or a nurse that's inclining down to a, a sick child or a sick patient, a, a patient that can just barely speak and barely respond. This is that incline, this condescending, this coming down to that's pictured here. Condescending down so that, so that a patient can recognize their presence. So David knows God's presence. He can feel his presence there. This is a picture of an ill or injured patient that has no hope in self and cries out for help because they are hopeless. And this is who God, this is who God inclines to hear their prayers, the hopeless. We can't miss the connection between David's between God's hearing and responding to the state of David here. He is in the pit of despair. 
God responds to those who have come to realize that they have no hope of their own. Now, we know that God is all-knowing, omnipresent. Psalm 139, it tells us this. It opens up with, Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. So we know the Lord knows everything, hears everything. But... Scripture is also clear. He hears everything, but he does not listen to all. So to whom does God answer? Now I'm going to run through several verses. Um, I'll try to at least give you an opportunity to write the reference down. I would not expect you to turn to these because I'm going to go through five of them pretty quick. So when we, so when we look at Scripture, listen to these verses. Prayers concerning the unrepentant. Isaiah 115. Isaiah 115. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The word said that he does not listen to those that are unrepentant sinners. Prayers of the disobedient. Proverbs 28 9. Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away, from, away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So those that do not walk in obedience to his law, God says their prayers are an abomination to him. How about a selfish prayer? James 4, 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You do not receive because it's selfish prayer. It's your will you're praying for. 1 John 5.14 And this is a confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So with that, you may ask the question, so to whom does God listen? Two verses from Isaiah. The first one from Isaiah 57, 15. The second will be from Isaiah 66, 2. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Contrite and lowly, not proud and self-confident. God's people are lowly. Romans 12, 3 is a reminder to us. It says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Paul's reminding us, because of this great salvation, because God has chosen us, don't think more highly than you are. This is the exact state the psalmist finds himself in, in verse 1. His only hope is to cry out to God. He cries out to God and comes salvation. 
Let's take a look at salvation. Verse 2. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. David's sin against God has left him in despair, but God lifts him out of the pit, out of the mud that is hindering him. You know, you think it's such a, such a struggle to be in mud. You know, you walk and it just cakes up on your feet, gets to where you can't move. It's every step is a little more effort. It just keeps going and going, and it's harder and harder as you go. That's the image we get here. He's stuck in the mud. It's exhausting. But God is lifting him out of the miry pit and put him back on solid rock. John Bunyan has a wonderful illustration of this in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. The main character, Christian, at the beginning of the book, he has a book in his hand that's warning him of the coming destruction, but a heavy burden upon his back. He is looking to escape the coming destruction, And the evangelist points him to a wicked gate where he must go. And this is where I would like to read you a passage of this. This is probably the best exposition of this passage I could find. And it's John Bunyan's work, not mine. So I figure I might as well read it to you. And if you don't know much about Pilgrim's Progress, they do not beat around the bush about what uh, characters' names. You can figure out who they are. So Christian, his main character, encounters the evangelist who's pointing him to Christ. But we pick up in this story. And he has a traveling companion here. So this, if you've never read it, it's written from the perspective of John Bunyan's dream. So we pick up. Now in my dream, as the two of them ended this talk, they drew near to a very muddy bog in the midst of a plain. And they didn't see it in quick order. They both fell into the mire. The name of the marshy slough was Despond. Here they wallowed for a time until they were totally covered with the slime and mud. Because of the burden on his back, Christian began to sink. Pliable, that's his traveling companion, Pliable asked him, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Truthfully, I don't know. Pliable felt offended and his face grew red. Is this the happiness you told me about? If we are stuck in the likes of this dirty goo right at the start, what can we expect between this, and he lifts his arms and slaps them in the mud, and the journey's end? If I get out of this mess with my life, you'll be going on alone to possess the brave country, for I will return home. With this, he struggled desperately and finally climbed out of the mire on the side of the bog nearest his house. Once out, he didn't even turn to help Christian. In fact, he didn't even say goodbye. Instead, he walked away, covered in filth, and headed straight toward his house. Christian never saw him again. So he was left to tumble in the slough of despond alone. But Christian struggled through the muck, little by little, toward the side of the bog furthest from his house, the side next to the wicket gate. He finally reached that side, but he could not get out because of the burden he carried on his back. But in the dream, a man came to him whose name was Help. What are you doing here? Help asked Christian. Sir, I was encouraged to go this way by a man called Evangelist. Christian pointed a muddy finger toward a wicked gate, and he directed me to the gate over there so I might escape the wrath to come. And as I headed toward it, I fell in here. He flicked the mud from his fingertips into the mire. But why didn't you look for the steps? Help asked. We were talking, and I never thought to look for stairs. Help reached out toward Christian. 
then give me your hand. Christian reached out and grabbed his hand and helped pulled him out of the mucky mire and set him upon solid ground. Now go on your way. In my dream, I stepped toward the man who plucked Christian out of the slough and asked, Sir, why isn't this hazard fixed so poor travelers can cross it safely since it is on the way from the city of destruction to the gate over there? This miry bog is a place that can't be repaired. It is a low-lying place where the scum and filth that comes from the conviction of sin drains and collects as the traveling sinner becomes aware of his lost condition. It is fears, doubts, and discouraging apprehensions about oneself that arise in the soul. This pit is a place all true believers find themselves when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal sins and the truth of who he is. Jesus in John 14, 26 refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. So if we think of that story, Christian has encountered the Holy Spirit. It is God that pulls him out of the miry muck. And we see in this passage, it's a picture of true salvation. We see conviction. We see despair. We see crying out, repentance, turning from self, turning to God. And this psalm was written more than a thousand years before Christ. And what we see in its words are the gospel. They are the good news of salvation. Salvation has always been and always will be from God. Those in the Old Testament were saved by faith and hope in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. The same way that we are saved today, through Christ. This is such a glorious picture of God, of his grace and his mercy. The young English missionaries were so moved by what they witnessed in the Moravians when they landed in America, they sought out a Moravian minister. They were Anglican. There's something about these Moravians. They sought him out for counsel. Because they saw and witnessed what they had witnessed in the ship, they, they, they had a hope that they didn't possess. So after three years in the Americas, in 1738, three failed years as missionaries, the brothers returned to England, lowly and defeated in a state of despair. One of the brothers attended a Moravian service once he got back to England. It was in this service, during the reading of Martin Luther's preface to the epistle of the Romans that the great Methodist founder John Wesley was converted lifted from the miry bog Wesley says of this time I felt my heart strangely warmed I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation this was a turning point in Wesley's life and as we read it's a turning point for the psalmist as well John and Charles Wesley headed to the Americas They didn't truly know Christ. And when they encountered someone that did, it profoundly impacted them. Once we come to this realization, what do we do? There's desperation. There's salvation. Our only response is proclamation. That's what we see from David. It says, he put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. 
David is praising God for salvation he has provided. So much so that he can't help but sing. He can't help but sing out. Then he prays that many will see and fear. That many will see what he has seen, what he has saw. But the word here that translated to see, the Hebrew word raha, it means to see, but also to look, inspect, perceive, and consider. There was a hope that John Wesley witnessed in those Moravians. He saw it. He heard it. He heard them singing. He heard them speaking. And it caused him to consider, what was this that they had? And ultimately, it led him to perceive it and to understand it, the hope that he had witnessed. He didn't just see it with his eyes. He heard it. He heard it. James Frame writes about this verse. Many shall see it. Many and fear and shall trust in the Lord. First of all, they see the eyes are opened. The eyes are open. Remember Dwayne a couple of weeks ago opening like God opens their eyes. Their eyes are opened. And their eyes, their opened eyes see and survey what they are. Where they are, where they came and where they are going. When the attention of the sinner When the attention of of sinners is really and decisively arrested by the propitiation of Jesus, not only are their eyes open to the various moral relations, not only do they see, but they fear. They see and fear. Conviction follows illumination. But while the sinner only sees and fears, he is but in the initial stages of conversion. And we see that in Wesley, John and Charles Wesley's conversion experience. They saw something. They began to fear, but it wasn't until they trusted in Christ alone where they converted. He may have, I'm continuing with James Frames' quote here. He may have set out on on this pilgrimage, but he has not yet reached his father to receive the kiss of welcome forgiveness. The consummating step has not, has not yet been taken, but he has indeed. He has feared too. But he still requires trust, to trust in the Lord. This is the gospel. This is the good news. How do we respond? Have you trusted? Do you trust? What God has proclaimed, do you trust in Christ? Because it is Christ alone that we must trust. If we have, then our response should be just like David's. That many will see, will hear, and will come to know God. Look at verse 9 and 10 of this psalm. When David says, see... This is what he wants them to see. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. He's telling everybody. This is, this is why the English word see just doesn't fit completely. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. 
just as David here, we should have a passion and a fire to tell everyone to live out this reality, to be a witness of God's mercies in every aspect of our lives. If we have perceived this hope, if we have understood this, this should be our response to tell everyone of the salvation that God has provided through Jesus Christ. But we've got to come back to our question. Where is your hope? I earnestly pray that it's not in self, that it's not in family, that it's not in the government, or it's not in the church either. Because here's the truth. If this is where our hope lies, then we will be disappointed. Because all of these entities we look at, they all have one thing in common. People. And we are all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We will disappoint one another if we put our faith and trust in this church, in our government, in our families, in ourselves. We will disappoint ourselves as well. But there is one that is all-powerful, all-knowing, and completely sovereign over all. And when we put our hope in him, we can all sing like David. When the country seems to be in complete disarray, I mean, do we even know what's going on? We don't. We can sing. When the church seems to be falling apart at the seams and allowing the world to take control, we see it in our own denomination, the SBC. When we see that, we can sing. We can sing, it is well with my soul. Why? Because our hope is not in people. It's in him and him alone. We can sing because our faith, it is in the one that calms the storm. The one that is in control of the storm. The one that created the storm for his glory alone. When we face trials, praise be to God. When John Wesley asked if the Moravians feared death, their response should be the same response as every one of us, every believer. And we can quote it straight from the words of Scripture. Paul himself says it, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The Moravians lived everything to the glory of God, no matter what they faced. So for a Christian... Our call is to glorify him until he glorifies us in his presence. This is our hope, Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, Lord, would you help with our unbelief? Would you help us to trust in you alone? to trust in you, to not let the, the peripheral things of the world distract us to where our worries and our concerns are about those and to trust that you are in control no matter what happens. It will all be to your glory and to our good. Father, Lord, may you, may you settle that truth deep within us and may we respond with a glorified life that is honoring to you. I ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.